I'm going to talk tonight about working with the various difficult mind states that come up in practice. Mind states that that everyone shares and everyone is familiar with by this time mind states of doubt and restlessness and sleepiness and irritation and neediness. It's somewhat paradoxical that difficult mind states come up in a meditation retreat. I used to be bewildered about it. I think to myself, finally I've come to a place where it's quiet and no one's hassling me and I have the whole day to myself and people cook meals for me and I'm not obliged to do anything and the telephone doesn't ring. It's like a perfect heaven. And as soon as I come here, all of a sudden all my dramas, all my difficult grudges, all my difficult feelings come parading out. It's even stranger in a way in a meta retreat because here we are really wishing goodwill to ourselves and to everyone else. So in a way it seems on the surface strange that the same difficult mind states should be here in full force as well. But in a way it's not paradoxical at all and it's actually a revelation about the source of suffering. It's a very clear way of seeing that really the source of suffering is not external stuff. It's tensions in the mind and the way we relate to them energies in the mind and how we work with them. We can be anywhere in the midst of the most glorious circumstances. Various energies come and go in the mind and whether or not suffering results will all depend on how we relate to them. Giving a hindrance talk is really reassuring. Hearing a hindrance talk is reassuring. Because one discovers or rediscovers or relearns that one's experience is not unique. As a matter of fact, it's uniform experience, that there's really a science of hindrances. There are particular hindrances, particular difficult energies in the mind, and everyone shares them. They're part of the apparatus of mind. They're nothing that we have because we haven't done things right. They're just the way the mind works. I thought it would be nice to start by imagining for a minute how a mind would be that was free of difficulties. I thought that would be fun to think about for a minute. Imagine a mind that's free of difficulties. I'd like to propose two models. The first, the one that Sharon mentioned last night about the mind permanently clear of difficulties, that the fundamental natural nature of mind is pure and radiant and reflects goodwill and (coughs) compassion and joy and equanimity. And indeed, that's what we're doing here. This is a practice that conditions the mind that reflects and radiates those qualities. And I'd like, in addition, to propose a planar model of mind for a moment without difficulty, not permanently free and clear, but just for a moment. By telling you an experience that I had years ago in practice, after some years of practice, that really gave me my first really clear understanding of what I hope to be doing in practice. It came about one day, it's a very plain experience. I've been practicing in this retreat center in Northern California for a few weeks and practicing away diligently with all of the usual difficulties of mind coming and going. And one day, just before lunch, I went outside for a moment and I sat down on a stone bench outside the back door. And as I sat and paid attention moment to moment, I suddenly realized that there was nothing wrong, that just everything was all right, that 
There wasn't anything that I wanted. And I thought, whoa. And I thought, now I'll open my eyes. And I think I was hoping for a kind of Annie Dillard experience. I hoped that I was going to open my eyes and the tree was going to be ablaze and that it had some vision and a kind of a William Blake vision. And I opened my eyes and it was just plain. It was just absolutely plain, but it was fine. It was fine. And it was lunchtime and I was a little hungry and the bell rang, but no impulse arose in the mind to get up and go on the line. And actually, the day was a little overcast. It was kind of cool. There was a kind of a mild mist beginning to form and fall. And no impulse arose in the mind to get off, off, up off the stone bench and go in. And ultimately I went. A few minutes later I got up and I went in. But I sat there and I realized I could be there a little hungry, a little cold, on a gray day in Sonoma with a tree looking just the same as ever. And there was a way in which the mind was resting. Mind was awake and alert and clear and composed and plain as anything, but resting. Didn't need anything. And I thought to myself, whoa, I just learned something very important. Metta practice is a way of conditioning the mind to stay open and relaxed and composed in all circumstances. Not by ignoring the difficult things in life, not by ignoring the pain in life, but really supporting the heart so that it can open fully to it. Conditions a kind of steadiness of mind and heart. And very much this practice depends on doing it with a kind of loving determination, a loving steadiness. It's a very simple instruction. Just say these phrases. Say them with as much sincerity and dedication as you can. How much you can will change from moment to moment. Just how much you can. It's a very simple practice but it's really quite a serious one. And we've really undertaken to change the heart. That's quite a momentous thing to do. It's a relaxed practice, but it's not a casual practice. It's a way of saying when difficult mind states, difficult body states come and go, it's kind of determination that one makes. No matter what happens, I'm just gonna do my phrases. I'm just going to make these resolves. Requires a kind of a faith to have that intention. In a way, these Dharma talks and the group meetings that we have are a way of trying to inspire that faith and encourage it. It's really real. So we could talk about the difficult mind states because there are five generic difficult mind states. And it's really important to know about each of them because it makes it easier to recognize them. It's important to know about them because then as they arise and pass away in your own experience, you can remember that these are one or two or more of the difficult mind states that are part of the experience of mind, not unique to you. Also, by themselves, none of these mind states is a difficulty. It's just a mind state. What makes it a difficulty, when it becomes a difficulty, is how we relate to it. How we identify with it, so to speak. How we take it seriously and fret about it, become agitated about it worry about it. If we understand them and can recognize them, there's a way of just acknowledging them, recognizing them, seeing through them, recognizing them 
as being the same ephemeral mind states as any other mind state. They come and go. Really empty of substance, they're not solid. Don't have to take them so seriously. And it's been very helpful to me to think about these mind states primarily in terms of energies and the kind of quality of energy that they represent. So it's easy to recognize them then as they arise in the mind. Because there are five, and I think of them energetically as being two sets of two and one other. They have two sets of two that are kind of polar opposites in the energetic quality. You get to be able to recognize them. The first is the energetic quality of a mind that's needy, it's yearning, it's lacking something, it's a mind of insufficiency, looking around for an object. I think a lot uh, when I'm talking about a mind of insufficiency of what a mind of sufficiency would be. I'm always reminded about uh, in my childhood, one of the songs in the Passover celebration meal that I loved the most had a refrain and the chorus was Dayenu. It would have sufficed. It's enough. But there are moments in our life when we really, that's enough. In fact, our cup runneth over. So we know a mind of sufficiency, really. I think it's wonderful to be able to practice with a mind of sufficiency. However my practice is, that's enough. It doesn't have to be different from how it is. Whatever this is, that's enough. It's a wonderful feeling to feel this is sufficient unto itself. A mind of insufficiency, just lacking, looking around for something and it doesn't quite know what. I was thinking about what I might tell as an example to um, explain that. What came to mind is uh, I have a new grandson who's uh, three months old. And when he was born, his sister, who isn't two yet, almost two, really knew about baby and had her own doll baby to play with and really we had all done all of the appropriate things for making the new arrival of this new baby the least upsetting to his sister as it could be and it was really fine and um, her mother paid a lot of attention to her and really was trying to make her baby care as least taking away from her as she could. Nevertheless, on the day after the baby was born, we were watching Leah and all her movements, and she just needed a lot of things. I need juice, I need a cookie, I need raisins, I need that big book, I need that other book, bring me that doll. She was just kneading, and her other grandmother and I looked at each other, and we said, she's missing something. She just feels a lack, probably a little anxiety about a lack, doesn't know how to say it, but she feels something about, there's something I need, something isn't quite right, and I need something. She doesn't even know what it is, and her mind is looking around for what could fill that lack. Nothing really exactly does, because nothing is really exactly what she needs. To be able to discover that the mind could be really needing, based on some anxiety about insufficiency, because that's what it is, and that's okay. I had a great lesson once from a friend of mine with whom I used to teach a lot of classes. And we were going to teach some workshop one day. And we were leaving from my house and gathering up all the stuff that we were going to use in that workshop that afternoon. And we were a little flurried and a little rushed going out the door. And I probably was a little anxious about the experience that afternoon. And I said, as we were going out the door, I said, wait a minute, 
I'm not sure I have everything I need. And she looked at me and she said, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. <laughs> and it's been a line that I've kept in my mind. I think of her as one of my great teachers. It's true. It's true. And how to open to that. We could always use something else to decrease the level of anxiety. But we could do without it as well. Wanting something is not a difficulty by itself. Wanting is a natural response in terms of how the mind reacts to pleasurable experience or the idea of pleasant, pleasant experience. Wanting to experience loving kindness is fine. Wanting it now, if it isn't available, could be a problem. Sometimes people say, if I could just feel a little bit of metta, if I could just feel some loving kindness, then I'd really practice. It's true. It's true. As the practice develops, as the concentration deepens, as the feeling of loving kindness really begins to be generated quite organically, quite smoothly, it's a pleasure to practice. It gener- the practice is effortless. In the beginning, it really requires some effort. So it requires a real dedication in order to develop that concentration, so to get it started. It's interesting to watch how desire works in response to pleasant stimuli or the idea of pleasant stimuli. One has sudden attacks of desire on a retreat like this, in the most sort of mundane and minor ways. You go, someone's going out to do some walking, and they pass the tea machine, and they think, oh, I need tea. One minute before, they actually didn't feel like having tea, or weren't thinking about tea. They pass the tea machine, and the idea of tea and desire arises in the mind. And pass the telephone, you think, I could call home. One minute before, didn't think about calling home. But all of a sudden, there's the possibility of pleasant experience, and desire rises up. The smell of lunch all of a sudden wafts in while you're walking. And hunger arises, and desire to have lunch. That's not a problem. I spend the next half hour thinking about, I wonder what the lunch is, and it smells like lasagna. That maybe is a distraction from the practice. It's a way of getting caught up in the desire, like making the telephone call or having an extra cup of tea. This is not a practice of mortification of the body. This doesn't mean that you really have to practice in a way that's self-denial. But to practice with seriousness and to practice with sincerity, especially in developing concentration, means to practice with restraint, to notice when desires arise, to notice it. Whoa, that was a flurry of desire in the mind. That was the response of the mind to pleasant stimuli. I don't have to do anything, but I really want it now. Then you think, I'm unhappy. This is the perfect practice to have that realization because the next moment one says, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering, whatever your resolves are for yourself. Second mind state that's distracting is the mind state of aversion kind of irritability of mind as a pushing away quality rather than a yearning quality. In some ways, it's somewhat like desire in that it's, a, it has a, it's an unhappy mind with a neediness, a neediness, it's needing to push things away. It's a mind looking for objects not to like. It's like a mind spoiling for a fight. Sometimes people say, 
I got out of bed on the wrong side this morning. It's kind of like that. It's that the mind with a grumpy edge looking for things to be irritable at. You can notice it in the course of your practice. You know it in the course of your life. When the mind has that grumpy edge, whatever happens is unsatisfactory. The mind looks for some external cause to pin it on. That person walks too fast, walks too loud, eats too loud, blows their nose in the hall too much, whatever it is. And the mind has a grumpy edge, can always look around outside to find a sort of recipient of that grump and make it responsible for the grump. Actually, you can imagine the very same experiences and a person sitting with bliss and with joy they don't hear those experiences, or they hear them, and it's nothing at all. It's not the experience outside. It's not what's going on. It's the quality of the mind on which that experience falls that governs what the response is. The sense in the mind that happiness depends on getting rid of some thought or some feeling Perhaps there's some body sensation that's not so comfortable. The mind is pushing it away. I wish this would go away. The mind gets tighter and tighter and tighter around wishing it would go away. The amount of suffering in the mind from wishing it would go away is often way more than the discomfort in the body part. You probably have noticed that probably sometimes coming along in a sitting and maybe your knee starts to feel some intense feeling in it, or your neck or your back or whatever, and there begins to be the desire in the mind for the hour to end, for the bell to ring, so that that difficult feeling will be relieved so that you'll get up. And the mind gets tenser and tenser and tenser and dislikes the feeling more and more and more until finally the feeling is unbelievably uncomfortable. And then finally the bell rings, ding, and all of a sudden the feeling is not so terrible. You have that experience? You get up, I mean, you still have the feeling But the tension around wishing it would leave is really what augments the degree of discomfort. The discomfort is discomfort. The suffering is what the mind adds to it. I'm going to be here forever with this. This will never end. I don't like it. That's the part that we bring that's extra. Apart from sort of generalized grumpiness of the mind, or the mind in a bad mood, there's a kind of aversion in the mind and anger and irritability in the mind that comes up in specific circumstances pursuant to, say, a thought. might be sitting in relative comfort, and suddenly you remember somebody, some thought about somebody in your life arises in the mind, and you remember them. And they did some unskillful thing to you, or they did some unskillful thing, or maybe many unskillful things. And a certain amount of anger arises in the mind. We remind ourselves that we have anger towards that person. And then we think it over a little bit, and we justify it, and we kind of run it through the mind a few times. And then by and by we discover, whoa, I'm filled with anger mind is filled with anger. It's not pleasant. But what will I do now? Goodness, I wish the bell would ring. I wish I hadn't thought of this person to begin with. My meditation was going so well until I accidentally thought of this person, and now it's all wrecked up by my anger. As if we're stuck with it. And we're really not stuck with it. There are ways of working with it, especially in this practice, working with anger in the mind, 
that really make it quite workable. One of them is just to recognize that that's what happened, that an unpleasant thought, a thought about a person about whom one had unpleasant feeling, arose in the mind, and that a feeling of anger arose pursuant to it, and that's all it was. It's a flurry of irritation in the mind, which we then augment with more thinking about it and stories about it. And sometimes when we realize that, it just dissipates all by itself. We say, wow, there was an anger storm just went through. And it goes away all by itself. Sometimes it's a little harder. We feel quite gripped by the anger storm. Perhaps that particular anger storm is a habit of mind. Or perhaps we have some fear associated with it, so it's not that all easy to see through it and see it as an anger storm. Particularly here as we practice metta, can really use some of the strength, some of the ways that you have of working with metta to work specifically with anger in the mind around specific persons who have done specific unskillful things. One is to remember something good about that person that they did. To reflect on some redeeming quality of that person. Just remove the mind from thinking about the ways in which unskillful behavior is part of your experience with that person, part of the reflection of some ignorance, some lack of wisdom. And think about something that that person did that's redeeming and see if you can work with that a little bit. It makes a larger context, especially as we work on tomorrow and the next day and we add to the range and the realm of objects of metta people that we have more ambiguous, more um, more complicated relationships with be more and more necessary to make a little effort to bring attention to some aspect of a person that has a redeeming quality. Sometimes when we hold on to that redeeming quality, we're able to be a little bit more tolerant of the ways in which that person acts unskillfully in the world. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect on the fact that all unskillful behavior is really a reflection of ignorance and that the person who's manifesting that behavior in the world will usually be the recipient of discomfort as a result of their own behavior. Sometimes it's possible to feel compassion for them. Sometimes it's possible to use that compassion to smooth away some of the edge of grudge that remains in the mind. Sometimes I think it's most helpful to reflect when one discovers that one's mind is filled with anger, rage, irritation, grudge. It's useful to reflect on how much pain I cause myself by keeping that in the mind, by reflecting on it, by thinking it over, by telling myself stories about it, by remembering it. Joseph spoke the other night about the response of all of the hostages have been freed, talked about not holding grudge, not being bitter about their experience, saying, why should I torture myself further? That's really what's true about anger in the mind. We torture ourselves further. I learned that in a meditation retreat context, again, many years ago, I had done some amount of meditation practice and all with teachers whose style I loved. It was just wonderful to listen to them. I loved Buddha Dharma. Uh, There was nothing about their pedagogy that I didn't think was wonderful. 
I'm a big pedagogy critic because I've always been teaching something or other. But all of their pedagogy was wonderful and their style was wonderful. And suddenly I came to do some retreat practice with a teacher I hadn't known before, whose style was very difficult for me. And from the first moment, my mind was creating a storm of criticism and irritation. Practically nothing that this person could say that I was not critiquing away and feeling sorry for myself about being there and shouldn't have come and they're doing it wrong and all of these other people are hearing it wrong. And Every kind of irritated thought, maybe I shouldn't stay, this is really unpleasant, I really don't like it. Many days later, I suddenly looked around and I realized everybody looked just fine. (laughs) And I realized that everybody looked just fine, particular teacher looked just fine, but I was in terrible pain. And I realized I had a very extraordinary lesson in that the source of suffering is one's own mind that is creating this whole torment for myself. It's a pleasure to be able to just say, well, here I am. It's not my style, but here I am. And begin to practice. Begin to practice, you let go of the grudge, you let go of that irritability of mind. The style is just the style. Person's a friend of mine now. Third difficult mind state. The first two had different energetic qualities. One of them is a pulling quality and the other one's a pushing quality. The next two have different kinds of um, energetic qualities in the the first the next of them the mind state of torpor or sleepiness fuzziness lack of clarity it's just not enough energy in the mind energy level in the mind changes from moment to moment and hour to hour and day to day just all is shifting energy level in the body shifts all the time it's not surprising that the energy level in the mind should be changing all the time It's not a problem that there's periods of low energy in the mind. Sometimes I think to myself, the mind is out to lunch. Sometimes you really have good intention, good resolve, and there's really nothing there to work with. It's only a problem if there's agitation around it, or fretting about it, or worry about it, or doubt about it, or struggle with it. There are ways to work with it quite skillfully and quite sincerely without making it the cause of more suffering in the mind. When we get, make it the cause of more suffering, it's kind of like putting all your two hands and two feet in taffy and then trying to get out. You just kind of trip all over yourself, making it a bigger and bigger story. When you notice it, say, gee, there's not a lot of energy in the mind, it's fuzzy. All kinds of things you can do, from the obvious kinds of logistical things of sitting straighter or taking a brisk walk or opening your eyes, to the contemplative techniques of just bringing a little bit more clarity, a little bit more precision to some aspect of the working with the phrases, either to see the phrases a little bit more clearly in the mind, hear the phrases a little bit more clearly in the mind, see the object of the phrase a little bit more clearly. Bring some extra effort 
to really aiming the attention at the phrase as much as one can and then being content with that and then the energy comes up by itself the very intent to be precise the very effort to be clear itself clears the mind and you need to do it without a flurry or without an anxiety and you just do what you can do that's really all we can do Sometimes people worry about, what if I'm just saying the phrases and I don't feel very clear about them? Or what if I really can't hold the object very clearly? Or what if I don't exactly feel that feeling? What if I'm just saying words? It's okay to be just saying words. There are times when the energy and the clarity just aren't there. Saying the words with a care and a tenderness and a gentleness and a faith that the energy will return really is very helpful. Remember when Joseph talked the other day about we're really developing two things in tandem here. We're really developing the capacity to generate metta, to feel loving kindness, and we're developing concentration, we're developing samadhi. So even in those moments when there isn't tremendous feeling, or even any feeling, when it feels quite dry, just the careful recitation of the resolves of those phrases over and over keeps the mind from drifting off, keeps the mind focused, and develops the concentration, and then the practice unfolds from there. The fourth quality, the fourth difficult mind state, is the opposite of too little energy in the mind, and it's too much energy in the mind. Kind of a mind that's buzzing, body that's buzzing often with it. It's the energy of restlessness, it's called. Sometimes people feel it, particularly in their bodies, and feel it in the mind, or the mind buzzing, can't seem to settle on any object. Once again, it's not a problem, just as an energy. Energy comes and goes, sometimes it's up. You may discover when you go out for a walk, especially if you go for a brisk walk, and especially it's cold, you come back in and sit down, you may feel that you kind of all buzzed up and the mind is buzzing. It takes a while to settle back down. It's not a problem unless we start to fret about it and worry about it or think it's going to last forever just a lot of energy in the mind and scatters it. way of working with it is just to try to calm it down a little bit. This practice is a really direct way to do it. You could say, whoa, I'm a little bit restless. May I be calm? It's really right there. It's really very simple. You could also select a single object in that moment. You've been working with a lot of objects, many beings. You might come back to yourself or your benefactor. I thought I'd tell you a story about my own introduction to really recognizing the value of metta. My own first heart connection to metta came about after I'd been practicing Vipassana for many years. And it was a time in my practice when practice changes from time to time. There were various um, intense um, energies that were part of my body experience, not particularly comfortable. You might think of it as extreme energy in the body that had kind of a burning quality, really an irritating burning quality. The mind agitated along with it. There was nothing that I could do that I knew about. I tried to stay with it, I tried to be mindful of it. I tried everything that I knew about doing in terms of trying to relax. And I was really quite distraught. Actually, I was beside myself. And one night, 
just totally dismayed with my practice, unable to sit another moment. I went to my room and I got in my bed. My body was buzzing with uncomfortable sensation. And I lay there and I thought to myself, I give up. And spontaneously I just said, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering. And I really said it. And lo and behold, it was as if someone put a warm blanket over me. And I really felt much better. And I really noticed it. My previous experience with metta practice had been only a little bit, only the brief kinds of metta experiences that we have generally at the end of Vipassana retreats. And in truth, I had never felt very connected to those experiences. Matter of fact, I'd felt embarrassed about the fact that I wasn't very connected to them because everybody else looked like they were really grooving on them. And I knew that I didn't feel exactly in the place of those guided meditations. They would move ahead faster than I was or be in a different place than I was. And I knew I wasn't right there, and so I felt a little chagrined about myself. Didn't want to tell anybody because he's supposed to love metta. Years later, I told one of my teachers, this is a private communication. Metta used to get on my nerves. That was true until that particular experience. I got in my bed and unplanned, just the mind gave up and metta came quite naturally. And I thought, okay, now I am interested. (laughs) And looking back on that experience, what seems to me crucial about it, and it was important for me to tell you this story for two reasons. What seems to me crucial about it is that what seems to have been affected is absolute singularity of purpose and intention. I was so desperate, I was so uncomfortable, that the mind absolutely did not wander. I had such heartfelt intention, I really wanted to be happy. People asked the other night about, how about we are worried, and, or at least thoughtful, careful, about desire and about wanting something really badly. There's a way in which there are wholesome desires. We really want to be happy. And the singularity of intention, when we really are in touch with our suffering and really need some way to end it, is really very helpful. I thought to myself, I wanted to tell you that story as a kind of inspiration. This really works harder, perhaps, to muster up that amount of intention unless your body's on fire. I want to tell you that even if your body isn't on fire, we all need, in the same way, to work with that intention. The fifth energy is um, not one of those pairs of pushing and pulling and too little energy and too much energy. It's, the energy. it's an energy that's described in the text like a slippery energy. It's the energy of doubt. And it's harder actually to um, uh, pick up, usually it's a sneakier mind state, because the other ones you feel in your body so much more. They have a kind of a body cognate quality about them. Doubt is kind of sneaky because you don't feel it so much in the body and it reflects in the way, in, in thoughts. It's the wrong practice, it's the wrong teachers, I can't do it, it's the wrong time in my life, I should have come later, I should have done another practice. This is really a superficial practice, how could this possibly work? Can't imagine that this is actually doing any good. All those kind of thoughts Everybody probably has had some variation, especially the one about, I can't do it. 
that that probably is a kind of a unanimous and universal thought at one time or another. Like all of the other energies, it's not a difficult energy if we recognize it. We say, oh, there's that doubt. They want a doubting thought. They come and they go. The problem is that when is that when we don't notice them for a doubt energy, for one of those difficult energies, and we identify with it, then we get stuck in planning. How will I get out of here? How will I get out of here without losing face? What will I tell people when I leave here? Should have, How will I choose another practice after that? We do a lot of other things. It's actually the most successful way to work with it is not to believe it. Not to take it personally. You have a thought that's one of those doubt thoughts, and you say, that's a doubt thought. It's just energy of doubt in the mind conditioning a thought. Here I am, I might as well do it. In the, in the interviews today and yesterday, a number of people have told stories about doubt being the principal difficult energy that they're working with. Everybody, I'm happy to say, is still here that everybody who told that story about themselves ended up by saying, finally I decided, well, I'm here. I might as well do it. And go back to the phrases. That seems a very successful way to work with doubt. Every time I talk about the hindrances, I'm always thinking a little bit that just in talking about them and in talking about antidotes, for them. You could do this, you could do that. I, I always hesitate a little bit because I don't particularly want to emphasize the notion that one ought to strategize, that these are particular enemies in practice and that you have to think of strategies to deal with them. Because then we can get very busy strategizing and tinkering. It's simpler than that. The most simple thing is just to do the practice. Just say the phrases. This is a very simple practice. Say them with as much sincerity and as much clarity and as much continuity as you can. It will change from moment to moment. And you just go with it. What's ever available, that's what you bring to the task. I did my first and all of my metta studies with Sharon. Sharon is my metta guru and my metta benefactor. And I'm very grateful to her for it. One of the things that I learned from her early on is we hadn't known each other before we met in that context. I knew about her. But in all my years of vipassana practice, I'd never worked with her as a teacher before. So I didn't know her style. And when I began to work with her, and uh, I discovered that as I left an interview, instead of saying goodbye, she'd say, uh, Sylvia, be happy. And I thought to myself, oh, that's quaint. You know, it's kind of like... <laughs> In California, we say, have a good day. Or... <laughs> And then I discovered that that was actually the teaching, that I'd be going through the day, practicing with diligence, and all of a sudden, one or another of the difficult mind states would come up, and all of a sudden, I'd be caught in it, and the mind would be in a fret and a snarl and carrying on about something or other. And all of a sudden, in the mind would float Sharon's voice, saying, Sylvia, be happy. And I think to myself, I could be. It's my choice. We're not victims of these mind states. In that moment, they disappear. One says, may I be happy. In that moment of dedication and resolve, the whole story, the whole mind snarl disappears. We're not victims of mind states. They come and go like the weather. Can't do anything about them coming and going. But neither do we have to get entangled in them. 
They're like a flu of the mind. They strike all of a sudden from nowhere. But we can deal with the flu skillfully. Neither is there such thing, I think, as a single hindrance coming up at a time. We used to talk about multiple hindrance attacks. I think they're all multiple hindrance attacks. They start with one and everything else comes in right after it. (laughs) One time some years ago in this very room um, on Halloween night I was in the best mood. I loved my practice. I was feeling wonderful. Mind seemed so balanced. I was filled with bliss and joy and I walked into the room and the room was surrounded by jack-o'-lanterns that the staff had put out with candles burning. It was all totally beautiful and I was beside myself with pleasure. Mind lovely balanced. And I came to my zafu and the staff had put candy on each of the zafus and I thought that's really wonderful. And I looked down and there was grape bubble gum on mine and I don't like grape bubble gum. (laughs) So I had a moment of aversion in the mind. I looked around, other people had other things on their zafu. That moment of desire. But in a million years I wouldn't change my bubble gum for anybody else's. So I sat down and I thought to myself, I really felt a little flurry in the mind, but I thought, that's okay, you don't need sugar, your mind isn't too good of a shape, you wouldn't eat the sugar anyway. And suddenly I realized that my friend Roger, who sits in front of me, wasn't in yet, the room was pretty empty, and uh, I thought I'll put my bubble gum on Roger's Zafu, and then when he comes in, he'll be doubly happy, he'll have two things. So a desire arose, I didn't use any restraint, I put my bubble gum on his Zafu. One second after I put the bubble gum on the Zafu, I thought, so uh, now we have two, right? We have aversion and desire, both of which I've acted on. Uh, The next moment I have a tremendous seizure of restless fretting in the mind and self-doubt. I can't believe what I've done. I've intruded on his space. I've upset him, he'll come in, he'll find two, he'll think he has a secret admirer, he'll think about it all evening. I'm not even supposed to make eye contact, I've put a bubble gum. What kind of a yogi am I? I'm supposed to be a good yogi, I'm supposed to be teaching this. The whole story. By this time my mind is totally restless and totally exhausted from the whole story. It's a torpor. All five in 30 seconds. Every hindrance attack is like that, if you watch it closely. It starts with one, usually followed by self-doubt, usually followed by the desire for it to go away, the aversion to having it, and exhaustion from the whole thing. If you see, they don't come in ones. But actually, this very practice, concentration practice, the building of samadhi, is itself the natural antidote to all of the hindrances, just by itself. And concentration is building when you're here, just in spite of you. It's building because you're quiet, because you're not talking, because you're not doing a lot of things, because it's a kind of a plain life, because to whatever degree you're repeating those phrases, with or without feeling, each time you repeat them, the concentration deepens. And as the mind deepens in concentration, the qualities of concentration are themselves the natural antidotes to all of the difficult mind states. There's a quality of one-pointedness of concentration, which is the antidote to desire. Mind stops looking around. And there's a quality of rapture in concentration just the light in the body which is the and mind, which is the antidote to anger and irritation. There's a quality of precision as the mind begins to see clearly, which is the antidote to sleepiness and torpor. And there's a quality of happiness and calm, which is the antidote to restlessness. And there's a quality of being able to sustain the attention, which is the antidote to doubt 
And it's all there in the concentrated mind. And all you need to do is say the phrases with as much dedication and as much care as you can. It's a way in which I think this is a magic practice. It is a magic practice. It softens the heart. As it softens the heart, it reveals all the difficulties, all the tensions in the heart, all the grudges that are the source of our suffering. And we come to give them up because by accessing the great pleasure that we experience, the great pleasure, the relief, the freedom that's part of friendliness and non-anger, non-greed, we give them up. It's just... We want so much to be happy. The experience that happiness is possible is wonderful. Makes it easy to give up those old habits of mind. When I first learned the metta phrases, I thought they were kind of quaint. They have a kind of archaic sense about them. Myself, I like the text phrases, and you may work with other phrases that more suit you, but I thought, these are really quaint. And I come to see all the phrases, all the resolves that I work with, really as a kind of a magic hologram, because there isn't any one of them, may I be free from danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being, which isn't um, an entry into may I be happy. They're just four different ways of holding, may I be happy. And each time I say one of them, I bring to it whatever sense I have of what it means to be free of danger, what it means to have mental happiness, what it means to have physical happiness, what it means well-being. For each of us, it's really that ineffable sense that we each of us have. part of our own experience. We all know what happiness in the mind is. We all know what happiness in the body is. We all know what safe and well-being is. And each of them is part of a way into saying, may I be happy. It's just another way of turning over the resolve of happiness. It's incredibly good news that happiness is possible. That's the good news of this practice. It's good news of all spiritual practice. This is a wonderful way to actualize that good news. In the text, there are 11 classic benefits that are said to accrue for the person who practices metta. I love to think about them all the time. They inspire my practice. It's said that the person who practices metta sleeps peacefully, wakes peacefully, and dreams peaceful dreams. People love them. Devas love them. Devas will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in the Brahma realms. Let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 10, 1992. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.